If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man. But I say these things to you, that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Dear Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son for us, Lord. Jesus, thank you for these words. Lord, we thank you for this difficult passage. We just pray that you'd open our ears and our hearts today to understand this. We pray that you'd guide Tom to bring us your word as you would have him to bring it. We just thank you for this, this great scripture, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Good morning. How do you respond when someone says to you that Christianity is a blind leap of faith? Last week, we considered the extraordinary claims that Jesus made about himself in the first part of this chapter and what those claims demand of every human being, notably that all honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Jesus declared Himself to be God's Son. He spoke of God as my Father. The Jews understood this was a claim to be equal with God. Jesus claimed that He works at all times just as His Father does and that His work is His Father's work. And then He, this, he talked about the nature of that work. He said that He has been tasked by His Father to raise the dead and to give life to whomever He wishes. And all judgment has been given into His hands. Those are Jesus' claims. And what those claims demand is that all honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Jesus then moved immediately from presenting that central demand that pervades the entire Bible to presenting what I believe is the central promise of the entire Bible in John 5.24. A restatement of the same essential promise that He spoke to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Here in chapter 5, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Is that belief that brings us 
out of eternal death into eternal life, a blind leap of faith? No, it is not. The belief that Jesus demands of all men is both belief that and belief in. It's belief that and belief in. You believe that this marvelous promise is true for you, personally, because you believe in, you trust the person making the promise. The connection between the trustworthiness of Christ's promise and the trustworthiness of Christ Himself is all over this passage. You no doubt have great confidence that the pew you're sitting in this morning is going to hold you up for the rest of this hour, right? And you know that without knowing anything at all about the person who made the pew. These pews were here when we bought the building. If a man sells me a car, I can check out the car for myself. Even if the guy who's selling it gets drunk every night and regularly cheats at poker, a thorough examination of the car itself will tell me what I need to know to have faith in the car. But it does not work that way with the promise that Jesus presents to us. The promise, uh, by the way, that shows up many times in the New Testament, this astounding life-giving promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ is meaningless unless the person making the promise is trustworthy. I can't just examine the promise of eternal life and know if it's believable. The Savior has to be believable. Unless He has the authority and the intention to keep this promise, it's just a bunch of words, right? But God has provided overwhelming proof that Jesus possesses both the authority and the intention to keep this promise for all who trust in Him alone. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus lays out for us five compelling witnesses that provide us an open and shut case. Every time, by the way, that you see the word witness or the word testimony in your translation of this passage, whether it's a verb or a noun, the, the root Greek word is the same. By the way, you'll miss one of those occurrences unless you're reading King James or New King James. And that's in verse, uh, verse 32 when he says, there is another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Three times in that one verse. That word occurs 11 times in these 16 verses, which happens to be more often than in any other entire book of the New Testament, except the book of Acts. And you have to go through the whole book of Acts to get more than you have here in just 16 verses. So it's safe to say this passage is about witness. Testimony. The witnesses that Jesus presents to us are first, the witness of Jesus to Himself. Second, the witness of John the Baptist. Third, the witness of Jesus' works. Fourth, the witness of the Father. And finally, the witness of the Scriptures. The first witness, the witness of Jesus Himself, has been front and center in all that Jesus has said and done up to this point in the chapter, really all that He's said and done since the beginning of this Gospel. 
But Jesus makes an amazing statement in verses 31 and 32. He says his own witness is not enough. He says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Now Jesus, just to be clear, Jesus is not pleading with the Jewish leaders to see if his claims pass their standard of evidence. He's declaring that the evidence is overwhelming because it comes from God. In the law, there had to be at least two people who witnessed a particular crime or event in order for the testimony to be considered credible. But what if the key witness is God? Again, Jesus is not pleading His case with the Jewish leaders. He's shaming them for rejecting the testimony of the living God. His own witness of Himself perfectly matches up with all that God has made known of Jesus Christ. The second witness to which Jesus points is the witness of John the Baptist. It's noteworthy that Jesus says here that the Jews who were opposing Him on this day were willing to rejoice for a while in the light that John the Baptist shone. There's no question that God had given John the Baptist a very influential ministry during his brief time in the public eye. Mark chapter 1, verse 5 says, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, to John the Baptist, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But Jesus mentions the witness of John the Baptist here only to draw a critically important contrast between John's witness and a greater witness. Look at the three clauses in these verses in verse 33 through the first part of verse 36 that begin with the word but. But the witness which I receive is not from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. John's message set the stage for Jesus. But the stage was all about Jesus. John's message didn't save anyone. It simply pointed men to the One who does save. One of the most surprising things to me in this portion of the passage about the witness of John is Jesus' words at the end of verse 34 when He says, here's what John said, but what I say to you, I say that you may be saved. Isn't that amazing? How many times when you look at Jesus' rebukes against the Pharisees and the religious establishment in Jerusalem, how many times you look at those harsh rebukes and say, He's saying these things so they'll be saved. He says that's why He was doing it. That's grace, beloved. Some of those Jews, men like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, came to faith in Jesus Christ and we'll see Him in His kingdom. The third witness here is the works of Jesus. I mentioned in an earlier message in this series that 
the miraculous works, the signs and wonders that Jesus performed during His earthly ministry were exactly that. They were signs. And what is a sign? Well, it's a pointer to something else, to something greater. It's not an end in itself. The purpose of Jesus' miracles was not to bring about the end of the curse there and then. It was to identify Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior, the very Son of God. To prove that He possesses absolute authority over life and death, blessing and curse. If He doesn't possess that authority, then the promise in John 5.24 is meaningless. The works of Jesus, which He said the Father had given Him to accomplish, bore witness that the Father had sent Him. He wasn't from around here. He came from heaven. It's impossible, as I've said before, to overstate the importance of that theme of Jesus sent from heaven in the Gospel of John. More than 50 times in this Gospel, that point is driven home. The fourth witness is the testimony of the Father. In the first part of John 5, verse 37, Jesus says to the Jews, and the Father who sent me, He has borne witness of me. All of the witnesses that are presented here ultimately trace back to the activity of God the Father. Even the activity of the Son and of the Spirit, they proceed from God the Father. But the Father also bore very direct witness to Jesus, didn't He? In Matthew 3, verse 17, John the Baptist, just as he lifted Jesus up out of the waters after baptizing Him, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon Jesus. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Father repeated those words later at the transfiguration of Jesus. In the second part of verse 37, Jesus begins moving toward the final witness of this list. He says, to the Jews, you have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. And you do not have His Word abiding in you. For you do not believe Him whom He sent. So they don't believe the One who sent Him and they don't believe the One who was sent. What He's saying is, the Father bore witness of Me, but you've never heard His voice or seen His form. The Jews who were challenging Jesus now in Jerusalem had not been there to hear the Father's declaration from heaven about His Son when Jesus was baptized. And ever since Exodus chapter 20, when the Israelites pleaded with Moses not to let God speak to them directly, the Jews as a people had never heard the voice of the Father. And no man has ever seen His form. That's what John said that in John 1.18. He said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The Jews with whom Jesus was speaking had never heard the voice of the Father. Neither they nor any other human being had ever seen the form of the Father, which was, by the way is why it made no sense at all to create idols that were supposed to represent God. 
but they had most certainly been given the Father's witness to His Son. The witness of His Word through the faithful prophets. Of all the people on the earth, they, the Jews, were the nation who had been most blessed with the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They had received the clear and consistent witness of the Father and of the Spirit to His Son. The final witness that Jesus presents is the witness of the Scriptures. And it's the witness that gets overwhelmingly the most extensive treatment in this passage. (laughs) So it's going to get the most extensive treatment in this message. Our Lord's indictment against the Jewish leaders here is scathing. And His diagnosis of how they became so blind to the truth about Jesus is instructive even to us as believers. He said to them in verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's these that speak of Me. That bear witness of Me. And you were unwilling to come to Me that you may have life. At the end of the passage, verses 45-47, to he says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe My words? The Jews searched the Scriptures looking for eternal life. But they turned away from the one of whom the Scriptures spoke. In verse 45, he says the Jews set their hope in Moses. What hope? The hope of eternal life. They thought the law could give them eternal life. They were convinced they didn't need Jesus. They already had all they needed. They had the covenants, they had the law, they had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices. They knew how to be right with God. But they were so very wrong. I'm not going to get started on how the covenants speak of Jesus because that was a whole series that we did a long time ago. What about the temple? Well, the temple, the dwelling place of God in the midst of Israel, pointed to Jesus. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And who will bring us to dwell with God forever, all who believe in Him. The priesthood pointed to Jesus. The perfect and only true mediator between God and men. All of the sacrifices pointed to Jesus. The sin and guilt offering who atones for the sin of His people, not repeatedly year after year, but perfectly, once and for all. The whole burnt offering who offered Himself up to His Father in complete and perfect dedication of self on the altar called the cross. The perfect peace offering in whom we have true reconciliation and fellowship with the living God. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We could spend a very long time looking at 
the many prophecies and foreshadowings of Jesus, even in just the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. But I'm convinced that when Jesus says that Moses wrote of him, he's talking about more, much more than those foreshadowings and specific prophecies. I believe he's saying the whole law is about Jesus. The whole law is about Jesus. The law set before Israel the character of God. It showed Israel what it looks like when a man lives out God's character in his dealings with God and with his fellow men. And the only man who actually ever did those things was now standing before the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. The law presented Israel with the standard of righteousness that God knew they could not meet. The law was never intended by God to give men eternal life. Because the standard in the law, Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, is you are to be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Well, we can all do that, right? The law was intended to bring men to the one and only law keeper, Jesus Christ. The one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law of God. The law actually describes Jesus. The perfect image bearer and agent of God on earth because He was God on earth. And He is God. The law of Moses and all the rest of the Bible is all about Jesus. I want to make sure we see our Lord's diagnosis here of what had gotten in the way of the Jews' willingness to see the living Word of God in the written Word of God. He says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, (laughs) that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another will come in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Paul makes an amazing statement along those lines in Galatians 2.10. He says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It can't be both. It's one or the other. The Jewish religious elite loved to exalt men. The writings of the rabbis during the roughly 400 years between the two testaments are crammed full of arguments about what one rabbi said, about what another rabbi said, about what another rabbi said about the Torah, the law of God. The rabbis constantly jockeyed for position to see who would come out on top of those endless arguments. Who would receive the greatest notoriety and respect among men? There was so much of man in all of that (laughs) that the actual Word of God was buried beyond recognition. No wonder the Jews were so astounded when Jesus walked into their synagogues and spoke with the authority of God. 
Sometimes I wonder if the modern church is doing much the same thing as those rabbis did. I think a lot of this is on the receiving side more than on the writing side, but sometimes men write books about what other men have said about the Bible. A lot of Christians will listen to five online sermons from men before they'll spend five minutes sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to Him. There are plenty of really good books written by godly men who've spent a whole lot of time sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him. Reading those books should drive you back to the source, back to the living and active Word of God. The question for you and me isn't how many men have you heard from who've heard from God? The question for you and me is when did you last hear from God? By listening to what He has revealed. Do you have His Word abiding in you? Do you come to the Scriptures to meet the author of eternal life about whom the Scriptures speak from cover to cover? That's why you... That's why you read the Bible. That's why you study the Bible to behold the person that it talks about. So you get to know Him better. I want to come back to the question, does belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior require a blind leap of faith? What if Jesus never actually made any of these claims that we find here in John 5? What if this whole Gospel account and all the other Gospel accounts and everything that the Bible has to say about Jesus is the contrivance of men? What if Christianity is just a surprisingly successful hoax? An elaborate myth built on top of a much more mundane truth about some guy whose teaching drew some attention during the reign of Herod never really amounted to much. He never really amounted to much before he died an ignoble death beside two criminals. And what if he was still in his grave just like all of the other self-proclaimed messiahs in history? Well, if that was the case, Jesus wouldn't be worth a single minute of anyone's time. All the talk about Jesus the great prophet, Jesus the great teacher, would be nonsense! Since the Bible is the only source that we have that tells us anything substantial about Jesus, if the biblical account has been endlessly appended and corrupted as Islam claims, as the Jews have claimed for nearly 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years, and as more and more people claim today, then there would be no reason to pay any attention at all to the Christ of the Bible. But here's the reality. The single most reasonable thing that any human being will ever do is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and trust in Him entirely for eternal life. That's the most reasonable thing you will ever do in this life. The Bible is God's absolutely consistent testimony concerning Jesus. 
a testimony given to mankind through dozens of men delivered over a period spanning 1,500 years. Men who laid down their lives and livelihoods to proclaim and to record that which God graciously revealed. The opening verses of John's Gospel make it clear that even the creation account on the first page of the first chapter of the first book of the, of the Bible is about Christ. It's about what He did. And starting with the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, the prophets announced all of the following things about God's Messiah and many, many more that I don't even remotely have time to present in one message. They proclaimed the certainty of the eventual victory of the Son, the seed of the woman over the serpent whose lie enticed Adam and Eve to replace God's Word with their own. They proclaimed the lineage of the promised Son from King David of the tribe of Judah. The consolidation of the offices of both priest and king in one man. Bethlehem as the place of His birth. His rejection by His own people Israel as a man despised and forsaken of men. His humble entry into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. His abandonment by His disciples in His hour of need. The timing of His death by execution even to the very year. The mode of His execution put on public display with His hands and His feet pierced a prophecy given by David a thousand years before crucifixion even existed as a mode of public execution. That same prophecy of David in Psalm 22 that begins with the words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? speaks of mockers and accusers surrounding the suffering and thirsting Jesus while His executioners divided His garments and cast lots for His cloak. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declared the purpose of our Savior's suffering and violent death 700 years before it happened. That He would be scourged and pierced through to take our place. To bear upon Himself the penalty that we deserved because of our sinful rebellion against our holy God. Isaiah wrote that this suffering servant of God would be buried in the tomb of a rich man even though his grave had been assigned to be with wicked men. That he would be resurrected from the dead. That his father would provide him offspring from many diverse nations. The prophets over and over declared that he, God's Messiah and King, will one day return as judge of all mankind. And that he will be established as King over all nations to rule the whole earth in perfect justice and righteousness forever. That's in the Old Testament. Over 300 detailed prophecies of the first coming of Jesus ranging in their date of origin from 1,500 years before He came to about 450 years before He came were fulfilled flawlessly when He came. No courtroom in history, no courtroom in history has ever seen a procession of witnesses like this. Dozens of men writing 
across a millennium and a half all saying the same things about the same person. And men have the audacity to call the worship of Jesus Christ a leap of faith. Anyone who bothers to know what's actually in the Bible and who has the God-given humility to hear it will behold Jesus everywhere in the Scriptures. Everywhere. Many who reject the testimony of God's Word concerning Jesus insist that Christianity is just something that men dreamed up to make them feel better about life. Something to give them peace. I don't know about you guys, but if I were going to set out to manufacture a religion that would make me feel good, it wouldn't begin with the indictment that my own heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. It wouldn't include the guarantee that if I embrace that religion, I will suffer the equivalent of labor pains living daily in the searing heat of a refiner's furnace until I breathe my last breath on this earth. It wouldn't take away the possibility, any possibility, of finding fulfillment in the things I can get my hands on here and now and tell me that instead, the really, really good stuff has to wait until I die. It wouldn't require me to submit to evil and unjust authorities for the sake of my God. To give no thought to being approved by men. To make no effort to vindicate my own reputation if men lie about me. It would not include the violent execution at the hands of evil men of the person who's supposed to save me. And it most certainly would not include the possibility of eternal condemnation for people that I love or for anyone else. That's not a religion that I would contrive to make me feel good. But beloved, it's the truth that rocked my world and brought me to my knees when I was a self-absorbed 16-year-old who thought he knew everything. It's the one and only thing anyone has ever said to me. And that's still true. That told me what I already knew was true about my wretched heart and about our holy God. And when God opened my ears to actually hear it, I knew immediately that it was absolutely true. That He was absolutely true. The argument was over. In a matter of minutes, my heavily fortified wall of well-reasoned resistance came crashing down like the house of cards it had always been. Jesus, my Savior, tore me down in order to make me new. He poured into this dried up, desperately lost soul His fountain of living waters springing up to eternal life. You guys have stories like that that we could talk about all day. Beautiful stories of transformation, of renewal, of sinners 
saved. Why do so many people find it so easy to dismiss the Bible as the contrivance of men and Christ, the Christ of the Bible as a myth? Jesus gives us the answer right here. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with the weight of, that, with the weight of evidence. Nothing. He says, you are unwilling to come to Me that you may have life. That's the diagnosis. You are unwilling to come to Me that you may have life. God has provided a multitude of convincing proofs that Jesus is everything that John's Gospel and the whole Bible declare Him to be. Not proofs that merely justify belief. Proofs that demand belief. Proofs that humble men before the Son of the living God that cast men on their faces on the ground in fear and faith and worship and adoration and absolute submission to Jesus. Proofs that shame and condemn all who arrogantly remain on their feet in the presence of God's Messiah, King, and Savior rejecting Him so that they can cling to their own contrived imitations of truth and justify their own pathetic, self-absorbed lives. I pondered in tears more than once this week the magnitude of the error that people make when they dismiss the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ there is no error that will ever compare. To every human being, Jesus says, I am the way. The truth. The life. And no one comes to the Father except through Me. He says to all mankind, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Anyone who sets aside the compelling manifold witness that God has borne to mankind concerning His Son sets aside truth. Turns away from reason and knowledge and wisdom. Turns away from life and embraces death eternally. The modern world exalts tolerance. Jesus is the truth. Jesus doesn't argue the truth with His creatures. <laughs> Jesus is the truth. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you want a tolerant religion, you're going to have to look somewhere else. To my brothers and sisters here, I say let us never be timid in declaring the same things about Jesus that He and His Father and the Holy Spirit and the prophets and the apostles by the enabling of the Holy Spirit have declared from the very beginning. Jesus, the Son of God, is God the Son 
He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of all life. He is the Lord of all judgment. He is the one and only Savior of mankind. He is the one that we are here to proclaim. Dear Father, we ask that You would make us bold by the working of Your Holy Spirit in us to proclaim to all who will listen that You have made Yourself known to man clearly and compellingly and in person. (laughs) And that incomparable person is Jesus. We ask this in His precious and glorious name. Amen.